Hello. How are you? I'm doing great, except for this pain in my genitals. I can experience pain in my genitals because I am 100% not a computer voice but an actual human dude, just like you. Capiche hombre? With my bona fides as a walking bag of salt water and disappointments out of the way, I can now say welcome. Welcome to you. Welcome to story time at the ape's nest, fellow skin boy. Skin boy is totally what human dudes call each other. We have a great story for you today. It's by our friend Kate Peruzzi, and it is full of many of the human emotions, mostly the tawdry ones, not sex ones, just shame and sadness and feeling trapped. It's also really funny though, I don't want you to think this is going to be some Philip Roth self-flagellation with a whiff of the Iowa workshop. Take it away, Kate. It's 1987 when Melissa the Beer Girl achieves immortality. She's positioned on an acrylic beach rock that is digging into the flesh of her ass with conviction. Her left arm is extended, gesturing to an invisible man, a 30-something father of two with a comfortable, if not wary, eye on his 401k, or maybe a retired tradesman with a 24-pack-a-week habit, inviting him to take a sip from her cam of Hagenbrau. A crew of assistants, five or six, all men, flit around Melissa, brightening lights, brushing granules of sand from her big toe, adjusting a strand of straw yellow hair, peppering her shoulders with cooking spray for convincing sheen. They all believe in the message of Hagenbrau. Fun, 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 fun times a million, a lifetime of fun. Reliable and fattening fun, smoothing the edges, the good times rolling through school and family, mortgages and loans, congealing into a sloppy suburban sleep from which no man should want to wake. The stock market will crash in a month and the crew will be jobless searching for a new brand. In minutes, as soon as Melissa gets dressed, she will become immortal. Her outfit, the garb of a come-hither blonde, absolutely perfect for the current market, will be her only form for eternity. And this is what Melissa's form will be. A red one-piece cut high above her hips, encircled in a distressed pair of cut-off jean shorts, the fly open, slips of peeking pocket laid like fatty ham against her thighs. She changes behind a sheet, and when she enters the set, the director, Jerry, a man in a perpetual state of shock at his middling success, releases his breath. Nice. In the coming years and decades and centuries, Melissa remembers few details from the shoot. The memories she does have are sparse and fuzzy, sputtering remnants of her life before. The shoot was a beach scene, the rock hurt, her arm hurt. They tried to get a dog in the shot, but the dog kept humping a buoy. The crouched and sweating men, ripening armpits, Jerry shouting, the taste of the beer, warm and tangy like stomach acid. What will stay with Melissa always is this moment. The all clear signal comes. She unwinds her neck first, a suspension bridge giving away to open earth and then her shoulders. She searches for a flat spot to place the can of beer. She tries to open her hand and it does not open. Tetanus, she thinks. 
lockjaw? But that's in your mouth. Is the hand the jaw of the arm? She tries to use the rock as a lever to will the can from her grip. It doesn't go. Melissa laughs. She bashes the can against the rock, and the sound is not hollow aluminum, but a heavy and godlike gong, a sounding bell that shakes the room. The men around her stop, cables puddling around them. Jerry comes back to the center of the action and stares. Melissa keeps laughing, using her other hand now, but the can remains. She faints. Melissa wakes in the hospital with odd clarity. Jerry is standing over her, blinking through tinted lenses. Sweetheart, they can't get the suit off. The shorts neither. His eyes look for an excuse in the ceiling before settling on Melissa's hand. The beer. Melissa feels the can in her hand, or rather, she feels what is now her modified left hand, a larger, swollen metal hammer. Jerry strokes her hair, plastered into place, unmoving. He will last a week with her, maybe two, and then he will have to go. It's still 1987, about a month since the shoot. Jerry lasted longer than expected, but still. They stayed in Melissa's cube of an apartment, Melissa mostly in bed, Jerry either on the stamp of a balcony or running endless errands, food, which Melissa no longer wants, bags and bags of clothes, first hoodies and sweatpants, something to slip over what is now Melissa's skin, then loose robes. Nights are spent trying things on, seeing how Melissa can last before the cloth burns and forces her to strip down again. Jerry rubs his chin. She calls Hagenbrau corporate. After five attempts, they come. Jerry leaves to get some air, something he needs in increasing amounts, while two suited men sit on the futon. The men talk, ask questions. Melissa puts on a robe, then takes it off, showing off the red rash that appears briefly upon removing the robe. The men are eager to leave. A contract is drawn up. It's generous, and Melissa knows it. Five years of promotional appearances, bars, beach parties, and they'd reevaluate after that. Privacy is promised, an NDA. Jerry waits in the hall while Melissa finishes the paperwork. That night, he tries to fuck Melissa, who, having decided to come to terms with her existence, was in it for the anthropological benefit. There is a moment of effort and then nothing. No dice, Jerry huffs, rolling onto his side. No dice. He leaves in the morning. Are you looking for the same Hagenbrau satisfaction without the calories? Try Hagenbrau X Light. It's not your dad's brew. It is 1992. A rebranding attempt is made, but nothing unteases Melissa's hair. Nothing can alter the red logo in her hand. Red signals a filling, traditional experience, something our older users appreciate. A female executive grips the edge of her desk with a pointed manicure. Blue is clearer, lighter, more refreshing. I think you understand. Melissa receives royalty checks until 2030, 
when Hagenbrau is bought by a Filipino company specializing in caffeinated gummy bears. Melissa keeps her secret, staying mostly indoors, but the men in her neighborhood follow her in packs. It was slow at first, a trickle slipping down a sidewalk outside a bar, making loud comments about the crazy lady in the bathing suit with the beer. Now they follow her into elevators, reaching to finger her straps. Give us a sip, beer girl, they howl. College kids, teenagers, older men. It's a sticky day in August when one of them catches her. He is more determined than the rest and faster. Melissa ducks into a twisting, piss-stained stairwell. She stops, his footsteps close, and she raises her beer hand high, waiting for his skull. He turns the corner, an outstretched palm making contact with the hogenbrow in her hand. How cliche, Melissa thinks, as they both grip the same beer for one heady moment. The man recoils, but remains on the stairs. Look over the railing, she says, and he does. Jump, she says, and he does. It's 2015. Melissa is a talk show fixture, has three million followers on Instagram. Cases of original Hagenbrau, discontinued in 1998, sell on eBay for thousands. Melissa walks her neighborhood freely. She has a toy poodle named Peaches. She is decidedly content. It bothered her for a while not being able to have kids, her vagina forever sealed in a lycra tomb. But, she thought, she would remain 19 forever, and wasn't that worth something? Turns out, it was worth a lot. Endless invitations, flights around the world for medical examinations, surgery consultations, all failing brilliantly, guest spots on reality TV, book deals, appearance deals, licensing deals, coffee mugs and CrossFit videos, money flowing in and back out into houses, penthouses, guest houses, houses left empty, sold and demolished. The friends Melissa keeps are flighty and uneasy, but she knows it. She is close to no one. It's 2021. Melissa speaks at universities to humming throngs of young women. She stands as head freak, the main attraction. Lay your quarter down to see the living, breathing monument left behind by a dying patriarchy. She answers questions primarily about the details of her condition. Has she found love? How does she feel about the modern millennial man? Has she been seeing anyone, casual or otherwise? The truth is that men do not speak to her. They stand away from her in the corner of a room, on the back of the bus, solidly and safely away. But she lies, she writes advice columns, prints slogans. Her female followers froth and grin and applaud. They stand in line with six-packs, ironically purchased and offered at Melissa's feet. She always smiles every single time. It's 2029. Melissa builds the compound. The structure hulks over a cliff, and she hires men to tear out the interior walls and sends them over the cliff when the work is done. The compound echoes dark and deep, each week, new women arrive, clothes in trash bags, unshowered and stale from buses and planes. They come with gifts, 
handmade blankets, lotion, cured meats. The gifts are scattered around the grounds and the residents pick at them, testing edibility. At first, there is structure. Those with education teach small groups, meals are cooked on hot plates, water is hoarded, and every night, a resounding chorus of we love you, beer girl, rocks Melissa into a gentle sleep. But aimlessness sets in. Some women leave, and those that remain are desperate and dangerous. Fighting is commonplace. It's not that Melissa encourages the skirmishes, but she does place bets. There is little in the way of entertainment in this new existence, and briefly, Melissa thinks of Jerry climbing her stairs, tripping over an overstuffed bag from Goodwill. She laughs. It's 2038, and the sea takes the west wall of the compound. 46 followers drown, the rest left huddled and freezing. Allie, Melissa's confidant and appointed head of residence, brings Melissa daily reports. Two more dead, fungal infection. How were the rations? Depressingly measly, like super low. No jerky? No jerky. No rats? The rats had the sense to leave. Melissa cracks her neck and points her hog and brow can at Allie. No need to be such a bitch about it, Allie. It's 2056. In the strange joke of her life, the compound was a little nothing to Melissa. She thinks of it sometimes in snuffles while navigating the undergrowth, cutting away at invasive vines with her beer hand. The planet has warmed somewhat significantly, but Melissa is comfortable. Everywhere I go, I'm on Malibu Beach, a cold one in my hand. It's 2064 when she finds a circular clearing, the familiar dance of campfire against leaves. A group of five men are sitting in exhausted silence, passing around what appears to be a flayed and roasted snake. They stare as Melissa enters the circle. Wow, thanks Kate. I hope that was not a true story. If I had to bet money, though, I think I would bet that it was. At least I have the consolation of this incredibly real body that I did not steal from some sleeping skin boy and drape over my CPU, because I don't have one of those, unless that means caring person unit, because that's me. Do you like the music this time? I do. That's why I picked it. It's by Matterhorn. I'd say you should check them out, but they have nothing checkoutable right now. You can try in the future. Okay, bye bye. <laughs>